I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Jason Manford as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with an award-winning comedian who I first met when I picked him up at his nan's house to go to a gig in Stafford. Since then, he's become a mainstay of British television, an acclaimed actor, and he's even learned to sing opera. Tonight, I'll be in conversation with Jason Mount. Good to see you, Jason. Thanks for doing this. It's all right, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah. I said the first time that I met you, mm. I picked you up at your nan's house. Yes, that's right. Really we were doing a gig in Stafford. Yeah, and you were an open spot. Yeah. And I was, I was the headliner. So just to clarify what yeah. an open spot is, yeah, it's like I wasn't getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> and I was driving. Yeah, that's how it usually I was works. using my petrol money so that I could <laughs> do a gig with you. Yeah. So is there ever any doubts in your head that you're going to be a performer? I was always interested in, in in comedy, and my family are all performers. You know, there's a lot of a lot of my family are in bands, and they played instruments, and they were entertainers. Yeah. And so, you know, so it was, again, it wasn't a weird thing to come home and say to mum and dad, "I want to be an entertainer." They weren't like, "Well, you, what about our long line of accountants?" So that, you know, <laughs> anyway, there was none. There was none of that. Keeping the family name going. Um, so I'd, I remember being, I remember at 16, my mum was like, right, job, you need to get a job. I was like, go to college. She was like, that's not a job. So I said, okay, I'll go and get a job. So I, I just, I rang up um, two, of the, two or three of the nearest places to my house, like, you know, a, a shop or a pub and stuff like that. When you say your house, this is Wally Range in Manchester. In Manchester, yeah. So, and, and for people who don't know Wally Range, how would you describe it as an area to grow up in? Um, like, like Basra with chip shops. Like it was, you know, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was tough. It, it wasn't. It, it was a tough place to live. Um, I'm laughing because I know. I know. I remember. I remember years later, a, a reporter did a, an article on just you know where I'd come from and stuff like that, and he said because it's between. Moss Side and Hume and a couple of other places that were a bit dodgy back in the day. Um, he, he called it the Triangle of Death. I remember him in, in, in the paper, I was, like, a bit severe. I was like, all right, mate, the Triangle of Death. I don't think it was that, it was that bad. We still, we still play football outside, you know, it wasn't that bad. But um, yeah, he was, that was him. That was the phrase they used in the paper, the Quadrangle of Terror, just finding shapes and words to put together. And um, so, but it wasn't that bad. We were very lucky. We lived on a housing estate rather than a... A, a council estate or, a, or you know, obviously where people bought the houses. Um, so it was sort of, I always felt very protected, really. It was on a, everyone was sort of in yeah. the same boat, you know, you'd knock on and lend a cup of sugar and stuff. It was that sort of, you know, that sort of place, really. And, and how would you describe your childhood? Well, it's weird because sometimes I go to describe it and, I, and it sounds like, a, like we grew up like Angela's ashes. Like, and it wasn't that bad. <laughs> but, 
you know, there were there were certainly <laughs> there were certainly times uh, where we. Um, I didn't quite realise how poor we were because obviously in our house you don't, as a kid you don't really notice it because, you know, you somebody's managing to get food like somebody's yeah. managing to sort out clothes so you don't. Why would you notice it? You don't know what the once you've gone to bed you don't know that, you know, your dad's crying his eyes out because he's worried about, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow, you know. So, um, and we I remember like game like it was like a game where we'd be hiding behind the sofa while the bailiff was like knocking at the door and like my dad would be like oh let's play the hide and seek game <laughs> we'd be like hiding behind the my dad even now says that you don't know the fear of like a toddler wandering off like from behind the couch as a as the bailiff's knocking at the door and you're trying to you know hide one from another so so you're 16 and your yeah. mum said like you've you've done the legal education <laughs> yeah now get you're gonna go you're gonna go to college but you've got to get some money yeah. as well yeah so i rang the pub up and uh, around the corner, which was, which was my dad's local, the Southern Pub in um, on the Nell Lane Estate, and then it's quite a, again, it's yeah. quite a rough, a rough place at the time. And uh, rang up, and they went, "Oh, we're not really, we're not really looking for anybody." And then she actually rang me back later on that day, the old one four seven one, and she, she rang me back and said, "Actually, what are you doing tonight?" Our, um, you know what? That shows you how busy that pub was. I know. It was no one else had phoned later. up all day. <laughs> yeah. You were the last number to ring. <laughs> So I just um, so she said, "Oh, can you can you uh, come and help us tonight?" I said, "Yeah, okay." So I, I turn up, and I remember uh, she said, "Right, you, you're the you, we need you to wash the pots." Basically, there's, we've had a big a big wedding, and there's all these you know everything needs washing up. And I was like, "All right." I remember this Irish woman, sort of in her uh, early sixties, and she said, um, "I said, where's the dishwasher?" And she went. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be you. <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. So I did that, and then as it happens, so we do like funerals and weddings, and I, I, I do whatever I could, any any hours I could. And on Thursday evening, they had a comedy night, the Buzz Club, which I didn't realise at the time, but it was quite a, yeah. a prestigious night. You know, everyone had played there, Lee Evans and Peter Kay. And well, Eddie when Zard I first and... started on the circuit, mm. it was uh, it was a gig to try and get yeah. to get. And yeah. for people who don't know what it is, it's a big pub. And it was a little room upstairs run yeah. by a fellow called Agraman, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah. And it was like, it, the, the, the upstairs and the downstairs couldn't have been more yeah. different. The upstairs was this like quite nice function room where they had this um, this comedy night on where people would come from Cholton and, you know, sort of... A quite, boho community. Yeah. And downstairs, quite, everyone was like that, was Yeah, it? downstairs, not a, not a set of eyes in the same place. Like, it was... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> I remember once there was a bloke at the bar, he had... Uh, he had Samantha tattooed on his neck and then it was crossed out and underneath it said Barbara. Like it was that, <laughs> like it was that sort of place. Just cross it out. I didn't know if he'd done it in the mirror. Yeah, I didn't know if it was ex-wives or victims. Like it was sort of an odd looking fella. But um, yeah, so it was, it was great. I, I, I loved it and I used to watch the stand-up every week. I was 16 and this, I'd never really, I'd, well, I'd, I'd been to one live comedy gig which was um, Billy Connolly when I was about 11. Uh, my dad's... So, so you went to Billy Connolly at eleven. Yeah, my dad took me. So your dad was a comedy fan. Yeah, he loved he loved comedy. He loved comedy. We had all the records and the uh, tapes and stuff of of his favourite comedy. And and like he would let me stay up and watch, you know, Comic Relief Night or you know if there was yeah. any stand up on a telly, he'd, he'd let me have a little stay up and watch. But as an eleven year old to be taken to somebody like Billy Connolly, yeah. that that's a massive oh, introduction. I, I know, and it was amazing because it was like. It was where I learnt so many, well, I learnt loads of swear words. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going into school the next day and just like, 
saying some of this stuff that I'd that he'd said, you know, and and uh, I think I had a Scottish accent for about a fortnight. Like I just, <laughs> he was just brilliant, and it was such a amazing thing to you know to watch and just to watch one person on a stage in front of two thousand people. You know, it's, you just can't get your head around it when you, you know, even at this age, if you've never done it or seen it, it's a weird thing to, to do. Obviously, I've seen him many times since as well, yeah. but uh, yeah, it was it was it, it was a real life moment of like, wow, that was. And then I got really into it then, and I, I listened to a lot of comedy on tape, a lot of American comedy, and um, Robin Williams, and you know, Eddie Murphy, and yeah. Uh, Bill Cosby and various other people. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to mention anybody from the seventies now, um, but, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was. Um, you know, I was really interested in, in it and, and, and watched loads of it and just loved it, loved it. And then so when I got this job and I was watching these amazing comedians, like, and they weren't all amazing. That was the great thing. It was a real mix. Like you'd see some people totally die a death, you know, and really struggle, and then you would see people rip it apart you know yeah. I remember watching um, Frankie Boyle like rip my dad apart one night my dad was sat on the front row my dad's like glasses moustache you know don't sit on the front row like if you look like someone from Guess Who don't <laughs> sit on the front row <laughs> and, uh, and so yeah he, I remember that being like a revelation um, so yeah it, it was amazing and then I, I I remember seeing and I saw Peter Kay there as well who was just on a, just a different level at that at that point of his career. It was one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. One night I was at the comedy club and I was there at seven o'clock and Agraman, who you mentioned before, he was pacing the floor and he's on the phone and he's trying to work out what's going on. And I could hear people, you know, panicking a little bit. The show starts at eight, it's getting to like half seven now. And uh, I, I was like, what's wrong? And he said, I've only got like one act for, for the night. It's supposed to have four. He's the compare. We also have four acts. We've got one act. He had someone coming over later because they were doing another gig and they, they said they could come and help out. But these two or three acts that were driving up from London had some sort of car problem and, and just weren't going to make it. So he's ringing around to see if people could do it. And Anne, the, uh, the landlady, she just went, Jason will do it. And I was like, what? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so Jason will do 10 minutes. I was like, what? I don't know what you're on about. Like, I, and she said, oh, he's always telling funny stories in the kitchen. I was like, in the kitchen? Like, that's different, isn't it? Just because I fancy your daughter. Like, that's... <laughs> that's, that's, that's the only reason. Um, anyway, he was so, like... He was like, I, I, I'll give you 20 quid. I was like, all right, deal. Like, because that was twice as much as I was earning washing the glasses all night. For 10 minutes, I was like, great. So I had about 20 minutes to sort of, like, think about stuff. And I rang my dad... And I said, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do uh, a gig tonight at the bus club. And he went, don't do that. Why would you do, why would you do that? He went, right, I'm getting my coat. And he came over. Oh, no. And he came over. I can't over. imagine anything worse than your dad coming. And my dad come over and he was like trying to talk me out of it. I was like, I think, I'm, I think it's going to be all right, Dad. I think it's going to be all right. And I remember, um, so about three weeks earlier, as I said, it was a bit of a rough area. I'd been mugged about three weeks earlier, so I had quite a... Uh, still had a bit of a, a black eye and a bit of a thick lip from this mugging that had happened. So when you say a violent mugging, yeah, not yeah, someone yeah. saying just give us your money. No, no, like they, they, yeah, with the with the punches. So I go on stage. I'm on first, and I didn't really know what to talk about. It was around that time where 
when email was like, you know, the, the big, the hot new thing. And, um, and you would get like, uh, here's some funny, like here's a hundred funny answers from uh, Family Fortunes. Or here's a, you know, they would just, people would send funny emails and stuff. And I remember thinking, oh, that, I'll, just, I'll just do a bit of that. Like not knowing the rules of comedy that you can't just, you can't just lift stuff and, and, and pass yeah. it off as your own. So I did a bit of that. And then I told some stories about the local area, about growing up in that area. And which sort of got like titters, but not like at this standard, you'd be like, I'm dying, you know, it wasn't. And then, but it was so warm and lovely because, because they knew I was stepping in to just have a go. And then somebody heckled me on my first ever gig. He went, he went, what happened to your face? And I was like, wow. And I said, I said, oh, I got mugged. And they laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I said, yeah, I said I got mugged in Moss Side. Um, I, was, I was walking home from college with this girl, Sophie, and we were walk, walk, walking home. And like you said, these, so these two lads jumped out. And uh, obviously, I think at the time I might have added a few more lads, but there's only two of them. And uh, they said, and they said, like you said, they went, give us your money or we'll beat you up. And I obviously, given those options, was like, okay, fine, you can have my eight quid or whatever. So I gave them the money and then they beat me up anyway. <laughs> And I remember sitting on the floor in a puddle, crying, Sophie's crying, both of us are crying, I've got like blood in my mouth. And I remember not being annoyed at that situation about being mugged, I was annoyed because they'd broken a verbal agreement. Like, <laughs> I remember being really annoyed that we'd entered into it with almost shock on it, you yeah. know what I mean? And I've been annoyed about it. And anyway, that was the first like real story that I told and, and, and it was a massive lesson even on the first gig, to go, actually, real life is, is the funniest of all. Like, you can try, try your best sort of writing things, doing this, but actually, if you can find something in real life that, that people can relate to, uh, then, you, then, then you're laughing. But for you to start doing it at a young age, yeah, that, that's quite testing and I think quite difficult because also, yeah. what you talk about? I remember there was a moment in school, I was always that kid at school, like, I'm the, I'm the sort of stereotypical, like, Clown in the class, like, you know, messing around, trying to make people laugh. I wasn't particularly popular, but, you know, I didn't have loads of friends, but I, I could make a, a small group of people have a giggle about something that had happened the night before or whatever. And I can't remember the exact story now, but I had a teacher called Mrs Cooper, Jude Cooper, the English teacher. And I'd, we were reading Tessa the D'Urbervilles or something that I found terribly boring. And I told a little story at the back of the class that was supposed to just be to one or two people, but a few people sort of were listening in and they got to the end and they laughed too loud. And the teacher was like, said the worst thing she could say to me. She went, would you like to share that with the class, Jason? And I said, yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got up and, uh, and to be fair to her, she let me tell this story, whatever it was. I told the story to the class and it you know, got a smile or whatever. And then she said, I want to see it at the end of school. I was like, oh. Can't believe I'm in trouble for this. So I went back at the end of school. She said, um, I enjoyed your little story today. It's not the right time or place, of course, but I enjoyed your story. So your, ho your extra homework tonight is I want you to write it down as a story. And I was like, great. It was the first bit of homework that I ever enjoyed. And I got home that night and it was the first thing I did. And I wrote this story out next morning, delivered it onto a desk and she marked it and she said, uh, at the end of the month, she read it again. She said, okay, now I want, what you want to do is I want you to take that story home and I want you to embellish it. I want you to fill in the bits between the truths. So if that happened and that happened, I want you to 
grow it and make it, make it bigger. Thing? I was like 15, 14, 15. And I want you to make it bigger and I want you to make it a full story because obviously real life doesn't always follow the pattern of a, of a story. And, um, and I went back and I tried it a couple of times and I brought it in. And that was the first time that I... And I remember when I got nominated for the Perrier Award in 2005, she was the first person that I sent her. A bunch of flowers too. Ah, that you know, like like yeah. that's brilliant. That shows what difference a teacher can make in mm. someone's life, doesn't yeah. it? If she'd have, you know, punished you for mm. disturbing the class, yeah, th then who knows that that little yeah. spark might have been dampened Maybe. straight away. I de definitely say so. Yeah. <clears throat> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. You mentioned you got nominated for the Perret, so you, you, you'd done your apprenticeship on the circuit. Yeah. And then you go up to the Edinburgh Festival for the first time. Mm. I wrote that show in about four months as well because I had this idea for a show that my brother had said one night that I thought was really funny. He was drunk and I was sort of sober and, I, and, and he was talking about animals that he could have in a fight. Just what, just like drunkenly, like, I think I could probably take a cow. Like, it was just like having one of these like, weird conversations about what he could do. And, um, and I just thought it was quite funny. And so I, I jotted down a couple of things he'd said. And then I started looking into it and I thought, hey, there's some stand-up in this. There might be an Edinburgh show. And I wrote this Edinburgh show uh, that was going to be an Edinburgh show about animals. And it was all about, you know, all the funny, because there's so many funny things about them. And I thought this would be fun to do. And then in the like December or January that year, Ricky Gervais uh, went on tour with a show called Animals. And it was a really funny, it was like, it was like my show, but like really funny. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, oh no, what am I gonna do? Like, I've already paid for the brochure, like, and I've got no show. And then again, Lisa, my agent was like, well, what else are you interested in? You know, what's the, and I was really interested in urban legends and urban myths and daft, like stories that spread. You know, I, I really like storytellers and, and how stories, you know, change and uh, over time and stuff. So I, I, I ended up writing that show in like four months. And I remember doing a gig in Tunbridge Wells in like the, so obviously the festival's in August and you do warm-ups June, July. And I remember doing it in the beginning of June. And I'd only done gigs in Manchester and the Northwest generally, Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, sort of places where I could 
get away with a bit of charm and a bit of northernness. And it was sort of fine. That was enough to sort of talk about, you know, Greg's the baker and funny things your dad used to say or whatever. And I was sort of getting away with it a little bit. I was getting away with it, just sort of charming my way through it, I think. And then I went to this gig in Royal Tunbridge Wells. And I was already late. I was like, eight, eight hours it took me to drive down there. I was in my first car, my Skoda Octavia. And I drove, drove, drove that. I'd been driving so long with the traffic that when I got on stage, my hands were still like this in this position. And I'd had to go on after Mark Watson, who's a brilliant comic. He's a bit of a darling of the festivals as well. So he'd absolutely knocked it out of the park. And then I went on with a little projector and a little crappy screen. And about 10 minutes into this gig, I, nothing, I was getting nothing. None of the charm was working. None of the little northern things were laughing. Nothing. I was getting nothing. Then I started the show, but by that point, I'd already lost them. And I was about 20 minutes into the hour. And this fellow on the front row said, this is the worst heckle I've ever had, even now. It's worse than a, like a, an angry heckle. He went, you can go home if you want. <laughs> <laughs> really passive-aggressive heckle. And I went, I think I will. And I just got, got me stuff and I left and I went. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I've got six weeks to go before the Edinburgh Festival. I haven't got a show because I thought I had one and I haven't. And you know, somebody has backed, I didn't have the money, of course, but somebody had backed me for the tune of like 10 or 12,000 pounds. And how old were you, 24, 25? So, what was that, 2005? Yeah, so something like 24. And I was thinking, oh my God, I've, I, I, what have I done, you know? And I really worked on it. I booked loads of gigs in outside of the Northwest so I could test myself and um, got up to Edinburgh, worked it all through and then managed to get the nomination at the end of the, uh, you know, sort of three months later after that terrible heckle and that that nomination and i've never played tunbridge well since <laughs> so people know you for for the stand-up comedy but there's a whole other side to you the time yeah. that you broke through to me and i think to the rest of the world about 2009 2011 yeah. you become officially famous i suppose so yeah and that, uh, I know, it's a horrible <laughs> thing. It is a horrible thing. It's like, but, but it's like a byproduct of being successful in our job, though, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's not, I don't think, I think if you sit at home and you think to yourself, I want to be famous, then that, that's not right. Like, that's not, that's not the, the best bit of our job. You know what I mean? Like, that is a byproduct of it. It's great, it has its perks and stuff like that, but, I, you know, I hear so many kids these days are like, I want to be famous. You're like, what for? Just anything, I'll be famous. You're like, well, serial killers are famous, mate. Like, what, what do you mean? What do you want to be? Yeah. What do you want to do? You know, that's... I never started stand-up thinking that this was a... Like, you could even do this, you know, and, and get to this point. But as you said, there's perks to it, which are great, but there's also a downside. That, oh, you know, yeah, there was yeah. a period where you became a target for tabloids. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. That, has a, that has a massive impact and consequence yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of a time in your life where you... You just think the whole world's about to end, you know, and it's and you and you think to yourself, well, I'm not a I'm not a priest or a, an MP or like I never said I never at one po any point said to them, I'm perfect and I'm no you know but for some reason you sort of lifted on this pedestal I guess where you where, where you have to be but um, you know you make mistakes and I think all you can do is it took me many years to work it to to work it out and uh, you know is to go I can't do anything about that. Like I can't, there's nothing I can do about yeah. the past, you know. I'm, I was in my twenties, I was sort of massively of course, successful yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I, and earning lots of money and being away from home a lot. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, it's just a, I can never excuse stuff, but at the same time, 
you sort of have to go, you have to, for your own peace of mind, you have to go, right, if I've got to let it go. And, if, and, and as an audience, you have to sort of say to them as well, like, if, if you don't like me anymore, then I'm really sorry about that. And that actually, that does actually hurt my feelings a lot, but I can't, I can't worry about you now. I have to focus on these people who do like us. Yeah, and to be fair to you, you, you know, you never lost an audience. But what struck me about it, it's not, it's not so much that side of things, mm. is the fact that it's a consequence. And people that I have met who have become, for whatever reason, targets of the tabloids, the thing that, I, that struck me about it is there's... Everyone's kind of come at one with it and mm. moved on. Whereas I, I, I find it so intrusive. I think I'd probably end up on a on a vendetta <laughs> against them all because it becomes it becomes something that's not about you, it's about a thing that's yeah. you're, you're no longer a human being, you're just a thing that's easy to attack. There's two there's well, there's that way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is you can't be a tabloid target if you didn't do anything wrong in the first place. Like general you know, I know that's a simple way of looking at it, but so in a way, yes, the, where in this job the rewards are massive, well, so are the punishments, you know, and I guess there's a way of looking at it like that. The other way of looking at it is that, you know, everyone's sort of got their job to do and it's not great. It's not, it's not you know, I, I, don't know how, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you go about ruining someone's life and then getting into bed that night and, and night. Like, I don't know how you sleep at night, but obviously you must have worked that out in your head and, and I guess so someone... Everyone's just got their job to do, and 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 I, I sort of have let it go really in that respect. But you there was, was there ever a time because, as I say, your career from that point I think has got more interesting and better. Mm. But there was ever a time where you thought this this being famous isn't worth it? Oh yeah, loads. I mean, there was moments where I just thought, you know, if I'd not had children, I think you know there was definitely dark moments where I thought, what this is this is hor I've, I've absolutely let everybody down all these people that have depended on me because also what i had was this extended family who you know i'd sorted my uncle's house out i'd you know my cousin was you know, i was putting them through uh school or college uh, you know i'd done such you know suddenly i was thinking i've got all this you know what the hell am i going to do if this is all suddenly taken away you're, you're a young man in your 20s you know uh who has all of a sudden found himself in a position where you've got money you weren't expected you've got fame you weren't expected mm. and you've got responsibility and that's the thing that, that that strikes me massively about you you know you have pushed yourself mm. outside your comfort zone yeah, but yeah. when you've done it you've assumed a huge degree of level of responsibility when you've done it as well you know you've yeah. never you've never shaken from the as you say your own mistakes but you've also brought your family with you that yeah. thing that you said about your extend, extended family and looking yeah, after yeah. people, that's always been really apparent with you. I just don't think I would enjoy life without them being nearby, really. I don't want a big house with a, you know, a, big, a big gate to keep everybody out. You know, I, I, I sort of like the fact that they're you know, a phone call away and they'll still help you. And, 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 I, you know, and I still have that sort of relationship with my um, ex-wife and I sort of have, still have a relationship with, you know, with my new baby and partner and stuff, and you, and so I think you just have to. I think you just have to find the things that make you happy. And what made what makes me happy professionally is making people happy. And what makes me happy personally is making people happy. So yeah. I think that's just my. I remember seeing this counsellor once, and she said, "You've got white knight syndrome." 
And I said, what's this? And she said, you always feel like you have to help people. I said, how the fuck is that a syndrome? <laughs> <laughs> Mother Teresa suffered terribly from I was like, how it. is that? How has somebody said that's so that's a syndrome? Like that's a pro that's being a human being, isn't it? <laughs> so every time we have a guest on, we we always ask them to bring on a photograph that's special to oh, yes. them, a personal picture. Yeah. This is the picture that you've picked. Do you want to explain it to us? That is me. I think about five, four or five, maybe, and I'm in my uh, very first Manchester City kit. Uh, when I was, and it was um, this bit getting cut out, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Uh, don't forget that was at a time when we were, when City were absolutely dire and poor and you know relegated and and you could, you went into school on a Monday like oh god I've got to go and take this now I got beat three 0 by Swindon or whatever you know so <laughs> um, it wasn't a fun time. <laughs> it wasn't a fun time to support Man City. But why did you pick that picture? I think because it has so many, like even now, it has so many memories of, for me, the the the, the football. You know, as even now as grown men, it's probably the only time that me and my dad and my brothers actually hang out and uh, you know, and and also and it and it grows each year. You know, I've brought a couple of my daughters along and um, we watch the women's football now on on a Sunday and uh, we, you know, my my brother and his stepdaughter come along and you know like it's it, it just has always felt like a very um just the thing that sort of connects us i guess it's the thing that we're, it's the it's the thing that we're all interested in even though we've gone off and done all these different mm. things and we have very different lives it's the thing that we can always go should we go to the match yeah all right i got to go to the match you know and, and that's what it's always very special and growing up it was my dad was so into it i mean we had you know like i said we had nothing we had nothing that kit was like he would have had to work so many extra hours, you know, just to get a few quick. That was that was the the actual kit that season. Like it wasn't a couple of years old. It was the kit, and and so to have that and to and to know how hard my dad would have had to work at the uh, at the hospital to, to to get that kit. You know, it's just it's a good leveler. You know, it's a good memory of of of. of of, of what it's all about, really, and, and why I still, why now, I, you know, if he asks for anything, which he never does, to be fair, but if my dad asks for anything, it, he gets it. So that's not about football, is it? That's about family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lovely way to end, isn't it? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I think we'll all agree. It's been a brilliant conversation. Please put your hand together. Do some nice. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. 
Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.